all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Let us pray. Thank you, loving Father, for loving us, for being here with us today, for letting the masks be off, and let us enjoy the fellowship that we can with you and others today that has been long in coming. Thank you for giving your son for us, and thank you for this beautiful day out there and all of your creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Take that back to Dave. Okay, the only announcement I have is right after the service, we're having an inquirer's class. For anybody that wants to learn about our church, it is one of the steps of becoming a member, but it's not a requirement. So if you're interested in learning more about what we believe or why we do what we do, that's the class for you. We'll eat lunch together, so I invite you to come to that. Okay, so we are in uh, the Leviticus, and it uh, seems like we're never going to get done, but we actually are. It's coming up pretty quick, because as soon as we get to the amphitheater, June 13th or whatever that Sunday is, we start with something brand new, so we're going to finish in the next three weeks or whatever it is. And uh, once again, as we've said all along, this chapter is a world-changing chapter, literally. Um, world history moved in a different direction because of this chapter. And that's true for almost all of them. So let me remind you where we've come. We're in Leviticus, and so the uh, Israelites had just come out of Egypt a few months before. They're at Mount Sinai. They haven't started the wanderings yet, um, the 40 years. They haven't even tried to get into the Promised Land. They had just heard, we read in Exodus 19, the covenant, okay? And the covenant where God says, if, if you obey my commands fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a prized possession. So they're going to become priests. And not very long ago, they were slaves. They have no idea what it means to be a priest. They understand the culture of Egypt, and they understand the culture of Canaan, but they don't know what it means to be a priest. So how on earth are they going to become priests? They have to learn that, and that's what they're learning in Leviticus. And so when the New Testament authors wrote, their Bible was what we think of as the Old Testament. That was their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament, hadn't been written yet. Okay, all they know is what Jesus' teachings, they knew the Old Testament, they knew about Pentecost, they knew the whole incoming, I mean, the coming of the Holy Spirit, they knew all that. But they didn't, they, they had to make sense of all of it and explain it in terms of who Christ is. So the New Testament becomes an interpretation of the Old Testament, a Christological interpretation. It's being interpreted through the lens of what Christ did. So when you, look at the, and when you look at the Old Testament, the theology of the Old Testament is captured in the book of Leviticus. That's the Mosaic law, is Leviticus. A little bit in Exodus, but almost all of it's in Leviticus. And so that's what we call the holiness code. That's what's teaching them what it means to be priests. And so we would expect to find Leviticus all throughout the New Testament, and we do. It's everywhere. In fact, this chapter today, Peter, uh, Paul, and Jesus, all three quote this chapter because of its uniqueness and what it contributes to world history. So now let's, let's remember, think, let's go back a few months now. 
When God steps into our world, either through some miraculous event or through spoken word, he does so for the purpose of redemption. And by the way, I said a while back uh, that at least 30 times, I think, in the Bible, God says, I decide when to send pestilence and disease. So I don't know what's happening with all this, but I do believe the Lord doesn't make mistakes. So one of the things I've noticed already is I've had numerous conversations with people in the last few months that are trying to reconnect to their faith because what's happening around us in the world has gotten them nervous. And so some haven't been to church in 10, 20 years, and they're asking me questions. That's the way it should be. So the Lord doesn't make mistakes. When he steps into our world, he does so for the purpose of redemption. Something is broken, and he wants to repair it. That's the story of the Bible. In fact, when you lay out the Bible in the order that it occurs, not in the organized fashion that we have, you can see the development of, in the good use of this term, social justice, how God is repairing one thing after another in world history uh, that was bad in culture. Once he repairs it, he doesn't need to go back and deal with it from that time on because he's fixing it. And once it gets fixed and ethics are developed, then we know what to do. So remember, all of us have a moral compass. It just doesn't work. It's broken. I know of no single example in world history where culture has taken us in the right direction. None whatsoever. Culture, by definition, because of a broken world, always takes us off the cliff. So when you see every major development in a positive direction, it's because they have a a Christian influence. What we think of as morality in our country was because we have a lot of Christian influence circulating for 200 years throughout our culture. If you go with me to the third world countries where I go, where Christianity has yet to have any significant influence, you'll understand what I mean. Dignity, for instance, what I teach in Hindu countries, Hindu uh, areas, they know nothing about dignity. They don't even have the term. There's not, nothing in Hindu teaching about dignity. So what I have to do is I have to define what this is, and that takes a while to define it for them to grasp it. If I don't do that, then rather it transforming them, they transform the word into, into Hindu culture because that's all they know. And it's amazing to watch them really begin to grasp the concept of, concept of dignity. The things we take, for example, justification, sanctification, dignity, all that, there's nothing in their culture that teaches them anything about that. It's, it's empty of all of those things. And so it's amazing watching the light bulb come on and they begin to grasp an entirely new concept. That's what this Leviticus is all about. Prior to Leviticus, these things in Leviticus had never been thought of in world history. Prior to 1450, we don't have examples of any of this in any civilization. We have a lot of recorded history now about this time in the world. And so Leviticus is groundbreaking in every single way you can imagine, okay? And we're going to see it's no different here. So whenever God steps into our world, he does three things. He mitigates evil practices, number one. Second thing is he introduces human dignity every step of the way. And number three, that's number two. So number three, he points the direction to true north because our compass, as C.S. Lewis argued, our moral compass is broken for all, every human, And so it can't find true north, and when God speaks, there's true north. 
And that's what the law, the Torah, that's what it actually means. When you hear the word law, you think of commands and rules, but that's not really the best way of understanding it. The Torah, the first five books, are literally a pointing of the way. That's what it means. And so Leviticus is pointing to the coming Messiah and the Holy Spirit. I've used the analogy more than once that Leviticus is a blueprint. A blueprint isn't worth anything as long as it's on paper. And so God is the architect of the blueprint, and the blueprint is what he desires out of his people. But it takes a builder to turn a blueprint into a house. And that's what happened to Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, we're now building a house. We're called a house, a spiritual house, spiritual temple. We're called the temple. And so that's us. We are what God had planned all along when he penned Leviticus, when he taught Moses these rules, was this is what he wants for people of himself. That's why Paul can argue there's nothing wrong with the law. The law was holy, right, perfect, good, just. He uses all those words. Nothing wrong with the law. The law wasn't the problem. What was the problem? Right here. That's why Pentecost had to happen. The indwelling Holy Spirit is what allowed us to begin to form this house. And and Paul argues in Ephesians 2 that each of you are a living stone being added every time you turn to Christ. The temple is growing. A living stone being put into the walls. So that's what Leviticus is all about. And so Leviticus points the way to the coming of the Spirit and the uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. Those two things had to occur for Leviticus to be lived out. So Leviticus is framed in two major divisions. The first half, uh, up through chapter 16, remember we're 19 and 20 today. The first half records the regulations for public life and worship. Okay? The second half records the regulations for personal and private affairs of individuals. So we've moved now into the individual realm of how we are to act as priests. Or what does it mean to live out holiness and be holy in our very lives? So (coughs) it continues the theme of separation from the surrounding nations. Remember in chapter 18, the chapter before, we read this last week. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. This was their world. They understood it. Egypt was the only superpower, and it was the major training center, trading center. So they would have known all of the pagan practices. So you can read these chapters, and whatever we're commanded to do in these chapters, that was what the world was like. So if you want to know what the ancient world was like, just read these chapters, and you'll find out. So we learned last week, chapter 18, that uh, it's on sexual intimacy, all the sexual practices. Don't do this, 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 don't do this. Okay, so now we know what the ancient nations did. We saw how degraded women were how dehumanized, how objectified women were. You may remember I told you the story of sitting on the plane and meeting those two exotic dancers, right? When they told me the story, what is your life like as an exotic dancer? They said 98% of our clients are men and 98% of the men are degrading, dehumanizing, rude, mean, abusive. That's their world. You see, that is the norm without Christ. That's not an exception. That's the norm. 
And like I said, when you go, to me, go with me to third world countries, if you get the chance, you will see it in real life. How degrading and dehumanizing cultures are that have no Christian influence. And so this is their world. All they know, they, they didn't have a Bible, hadn't been written yet. They didn't know anything. And so their world is a world where women were dehumanized, degraded, objectified, and owned. That was the norm. You could do what you want. They're property. And so when you take Leviticus 18 last week and you strip away all the negatives and they're no longer present, you know what you're left with? A woman with dignity and honor. That's what you're left with. In other words, you can't treat them as property. You can't do this to these women, all these practices. That's what you get when you take away all those. All those prohibitions disappear from culture, and women are now treated with respect. It's a fascinating chapter. We're going to see something in this chapter just um, very similar. So they're learning how to live out these practices in their daily lives. So you see things like uh, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. I mean, these, these laws are very... And, and you think, well, duh, we, that's right. But that's because we have 2,000 years of, of the Holy Spirit helping us reflect that. So we have a much better developed sense of ethics than they did back then. They wouldn't have known all this. All they know is the pagan world around them. That's all they know. So the very beginning of chapter 19 is an admonition to be holy. You heard it read in First Peter. Here it is in Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He doesn't say become holy. Be holy. Live it out. And so now he's getting into some of the heart of the law at an individual level of what does it mean to live it out? What does that mean to live out what we know to be true? And really, that's what this chapter is all about. So this chapter can be divided into two major sections as well. The first section is focusing on the loyalty to the covenant. They had just made that a couple months before in Exodus 19. When they got to Mount Sinai, they had made the covenant with God. Okay, What he did was, he said, If you obey me fully, then I will make you a kingdom of priests, a prized possession, my own people. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they said, all that you ask, we will do. I love that verse. Then they turn right around and make the golden calf. <laughs> right? So uh, they, uh, they, much like us, they made a commitment. They couldn't follow through on it. And we learned later on from Paul that they couldn't because of this. Right here, there's the problem. So they just made the covenant. Now, a couple months later, they're being taught for the first time Leviticus. So the first section is helping them understand loyalty to the covenant within the boundaries of the new nation. So what happens internally here? What do we do amongst ourselves? And then the second section of chapter 19 is loyalty to the covenant for people outside. What does it look like in the land of Canaan once we get there? Not to follow their practices, basically, but to live a very different kind of light. Because remember, the world is in darkness. Don't we quote this every Christmas? Right? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. 
That's a verse we quote every Christmas. So picture this. We live in a world completely dark. No lights anywhere. Imagine complete darkness. If you've ever been in complete darkness, you know what I mean. I remember when I was in the Navy learning to scuba dive, we went into a cave. Turn out the lights. You couldn't see a single thing. You're so disoriented, lost, you can't figure out which way's up. And so darkness, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. So the whole world is completely dark, and all of a sudden over there in one of the mountains, you see light for the first time. What does John say? Light came, was coming into the world as Jesus, and therefore it's us. So you see light over on the mountain over there, and you think, what is that? And so you're drawn to the light, and you want to go find out. That's the picture of what Leviticus is all about, is that by living holy lives, living as true priests, living out in our individual lives, um, the, the, the things that God wants us to do, we become a light to the world, and they're drawn to us. I think that's why right now, in the middle of all of this stuff going on in our culture that's so confusing and upside down, people are coming and talking to me about, I haven't been to church in 10 years. I had lunch with a person this year, this week. I haven't been to church in probably 15 years. You know, never want anything to do with it. But I'm really curious now. Talk to me. And I've had that conversation many times. People wanting to know. By the way, one of the, one of the uh, dancers, I've been texting with him, wrote me and said, thank you so much for praying for me every day. Perhaps sometime in the near future we can get together again and talk some more. Hungry. Hungry. Empty. And the world is scaring them. Chapter 20, which we're not going to get into, is all the punishments for what happens if you don't. You can read that on your own. So this chapter is actually framed against the Ten Commandments, and we're going to work through the commandments now. Okay? So the first commandment, let's go ahead and put that up. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for, uh, for yourself an image in the form of anything. That's actually uh, the first two commandments put together. Exodus 20, verse 3 and 4. You shall, not have, you shall have no other gods, and you shall not make for yourself an image. It's in Le- Leviticus 19, do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord, your God. So he's repeating the Ten Commandments, but in a different context now. Because now they're getting closer to entering the land. Okay, look at commandment number three. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Leviticus, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So this is giving a little bit more insight into these Ten Commandments. Commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. I'm actually going to read to you uh, the the whole section here because there's more information given. Um, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, let me say a word about Sabbath. 
Uh, this is the most interesting of the ten when it moves into the New Testament because we don't really, we, we misread this all the time. It says on the seventh day he rested. That doesn't mean he sat down and watched TV. It doesn't mean he fell asleep and took a nap. Even the Jewish theologians understood that's not what it meant because God was working on the Sabbath and the proof of that was because babies were born and people died. And that's clearly the work of the Lord. He takes responsibility for births and deaths. They die when he says they die. And they're born when he says they're going to be born. Um, Psalm 139 and several other places refer to that. So they understood that God was very much at work on the, seventh, on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. So what is Sabbath actually talking about? It says God rested. Well, when you understand the, in the ancient world how they thought about these things, okay? Six days, God built something. Once he built it, then he could begin to fulfill the purpose for which he built it. Okay? So you build a building, and then you don't walk away and leave it empty. You not fill it. And whatever the purpose is, that's what you do. So it's moving beyond the building process to the administration process. So he built in seven days, six days, all of creation. Then he began to administer it. Now we can capture a glimpse of what this day is all about. Worship is the day, a Sabbath is the day in this context where we begin to stop from our work 12, 14 hours a day, which they did back then. And now we do what we're supposed to do, what we're designed to do, and that is to stop and worship the Lord. And that's what Sabbath is all about. That's why in the New Testament, Sabbath is now scattered over the whole week. This should define our very lives, is that we have the Holy Spirit. And so internal rest should now be part of our life. And if you talk to Christians who have been Christians for many years, they're much more at rest now than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's what we're learning as we age, is that that rest is something that now defines us. It's not the absence of work. We're created for work. Everyone likes to work. They just don't like to work under the curse. Everyone likes to build something, to create something, make something happen, but they don't like the curse that goes with it. That's what they don't like. Because Genesis 1, let us make humans in our image and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air. So we are created to do things, to accomplish things. We just weren't created to do it in the context of the curse. Okay? So now Leviticus can come along and say, you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. My Sabbaths, plural. You see, the land also enjoyed Sabbath. It was supposed to. Environmentalism should be a very core element of our theology. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3, where we learn that God created everything and gave it to us as a gift, and we're supposed to take care of it. In fact, Genesis 2 and 3 describes it in terms of a, a handshake we have with the earth. We are to serve the earth, not worship it. We're to serve it and take care of it because it takes care of us. We cannot fulfill our God-designed purpose without creation. And creation cannot serve its God-designed purpose without us. So, for example, the earth can't feed us unless we cultivate it. And that's what it's there for, to take care of us. But it can't do that without our help. And we also can't fulfill our mission of caring for the earth without it. And so you have this relationship. So this is part and parcel of the very core of why we're created the way we are. We should need environmentalists to tell us what to do. We should do it on our own. And if you look at any sound uh, environmental policy, the very beginning, one of the very beginning assumptions is that 
you own something, and that's what you're going to take care of, private property. When's the last time you took a car that you rented, changed the oil and washed it before you turned it in? You don't own it, right? And so God understood that because he created us that way. Therefore, Israel is the first nation in history to allow ownership of private property. When they got into the promised land, everybody got a parcel of land. You get one, 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 you get one. You. So everybody got land. And it was permanent. If you were so foolish as to get into financial debt and you had to sell your land at the end of 50 years, your family got it back. That was guaranteed. And so part of the whole Sabbath keeping was every seven years they had to let the land rest and not abuse it. Let it rest. That's how God calculated the 400 plus years that they, were, that they were kicked out of the land and they went to other nations because he said, you didn't honor that and you abused the land all those years. So now I'm going to let the land rest for 400 years and you get to go into captivity because for 400 years, the land was in captivity to you. Now I'm going to reverse it. You get to go out and I'm going to let the land rest. So environmental policy is a very central aspect of environmentalism is a very central aspect of Christianity. And we should be the leaders in this. This goes all the way back to the Sabbath. Okay, commandment number five. Honor your father and your mother. Exodus 20 adds a phrase. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Okay? In other words, life in the sense of health and longevity is tied to honoring your parents. We should remember that as our parents grow older. Nancy and I took that seriously uh, growing up. Our four, our parents are all now with the Lord, but we took it seriously. When my mom got close to uh, dying, I asked her, you know, are you okay financially? Do you need us to help you? We're willing to do that. And she said, no, no, your dad took care of me. Okay. Nancy's mom, when she got Alzheimer's, was in a, a, an Alzheimer's place. And uh, we knew that she'd had a really rough childhood that involved some rejection. We didn't know all the details. So we made it a point of every day going and visiting her, spending time with her, and telling her, we're not going to leave you or forsake you. We're here. Even when she, couldn't know, she didn't know who we were, we told her that almost every day, I think. And that was taking care of our parents. And so it goes back to here. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Leviticus, each of you must respect your mother and father. Commandment number six. By the way, I decided to go ahead and read these 10 commandments because it's probably been a while since most of you have read the 10. This is what should define culture right here, these 10. You shall not murder. Leviticus, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Don't forget, I'm telling you this. Commandment seven. You shall not commit adultery. This is an interesting one because he makes a reference here that jumps us back to Leviticus 18. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. That was one of the requirements in Leviticus 18. So by using this one phrase, he's capturing the whole theology of Leviticus 18. Don't degrade women. Okay? And that's what committing adultery is doing. You're degrading your spouse. That's what you're doing. So, do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. Now listen to this. Or the land will turn to prostitution 
and be filled with wickedness. That's still true today. The more degraded our sexual ethics become, the more wickedness we see. Can't get away from it. This principle is true. Can't get away, can't get away from it. And all the way through, the, that's what the story of the Old Testament is all about. By the time he kicked them out of the land, he destroyed completely, removed them from the face of the earth, ten tribes, and the other two he punished for a long time. Commandment eight. Shouldn't steal. Pretty simple. Do not steal. Commandment nine. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Leviticus, do not go about spreading slander among your people. And one of the things I love about you, as a senior pastor, I have, I have ears everywhere out in the county. I know a lot about a lot of you, actually. Uh, and it's just the way it is in a small town. You can't get away very much in a small town. No secrets in a small town, right? I went to get my eyes checked early in the week. And, uh, uh, and he said, ah, it's good to see you. How's a... How are you recovering from COVID? How did you know about COVID? Oh, I heard about it from several. Half your church comes to me. You know, did you make it through ICU okay? You know? Um, by the way, how's your concussion doing? You heard about that too? Yeah, in fact, you're having your second COVID shot this week. No secrets in a small town. We all live in a fishbowl. And everywhere I go, I hear about you. In fact, several of the restaurants, I sit down with the owners once or twice a year and just say, tell me about DCC. What do you hear? And I get to hear and listen. And it's all good. It's 99% good. But you know what I don't hear? Slander. And gossip. It probably is occurring. But I don't hear it. I cannot tell you, as an elder and a staff member here, and one of the pastors, how refreshing it is. That's not, not something I hear. This is a healthy church. It's a healthy church. I know things about people that are out there in the public that on many churches, they would have been scattered all over and I don't hear anything back. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Remember, it's an ancient world. These are all property, including the wife. Instead, he turns it into a positive command. Rather than do not covet, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor, then you're not going to covet what they have. They're mutually exclusive ideas. I am the Lord. So when we come back to Leviticus, what we find is that this chapter introduces something very significant, and it's going to surprise you, not thought of in the world. It's called love. This is the first time in the law that love is introduced. It took us to chapter 19 to get there. But you know why? Because he's pretty much taught them all the rules. And now he's concluding, starting to conclude with a very simple idea that was not heard of. The reason why we do all this is because of love. That's the reason we do it. Every, by now, uh, we have plenty of evidence of the law codes surrounding Israel at this time in world history. And love is never given as the basis. 
But love is now given as the reason. So each of the two sections in Leviticus concludes with love. The first one is in verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And at the end of the second section, he says, the foreigner residing among you must, not, must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. First time love is mentioned, I am the Lord. So we just brought into the world discussion a new idea. That's why I said this changes world history. The reason why we obey rules and laws is because we love each other. That's the reason. That's the reason. We can now begin to understand Leviticus was written to answer the question, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who's allowed to go into the Lord's presence? Those who keep the rules? No. That's fair. That was our argument of the Pharisees. Those who love others. That's who. We don't need laws to tell us what to do. The law is written on our hearts. Laws can only regulate behavior. They can't regulate morality. Because morality is a statement of the heart. So we don't need a law as Christians to tell us not to murder. We may sometimes want to murder our kids, but we get past it. We don't need the law to tell us not to murder. Because you know what? What we learn from this is that it's now part of who we are. Your natural inclination is to love people, and you're not very good at it when you're a young Christian. And honestly, you have to work at it, and it's a challenge your whole life, but that's your natural inclination now because of the Spirit. And as you begin to mature in the Lord, you love people more and more, and the reasons you get offended gets less and less. Okay? Less and less. So Jesus, uh, by the way, I'm not going to put all these verses up there. Jesus quoted Matthew 19 and Leviticus, the two love commands. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, the entire law hangs. It's the foundation for all of the Mosaic Code. Peter quoted it as we heard read in First, in first Peter 1. But Paul, I want to, uh, this I do want to do, Paul does something very interesting with this love command in Romans 13, verse 8. You can go ahead and put this one up there. Good. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love, you're not going to murder. If you love, you're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to covet. He goes on, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment. He comes back to this. I'm going to go to Romans next. But we all know 1 Corinthians 